Welcome to Medical Educate Talks. Welcome to our podcast, Medical Educate Talks, where members from the Developing Medical Educators team at the Academy of Medical Educators discuss topics of interest with experienced colleagues from their field. In today's episode, we're in discussion with Professor Alan Dennison talking about professional standards in medical education. Hello, and welcome to Medical Educate Talks, DMEG's new podcast series. This episode, we are talking to Professor Alan Dennison about his career and about professional standards in medical education. My name is Cara Bedzina. I'm a GP and currently on a scholarship programme working as a clinical lecturer with the University of Aberdeen. I'm based in Inverness with the Highland Medical Education team. Breaking tradition from previous episodes, I'm going to introduce my guest today. Professor Alan Dennison was born and raised in Edinburgh. However, he travelled up north to Aberdeen for medical school. After working around Scotland as a junior doctor, he trained as a radiologist and still works as a consultant in NHS Grampian. 19 years after graduating from the University of Aberdeen, he took up the role of the MBCHB programme lead. He is currently a Dean of Postgraduate Medicine for NHS Education for Scotland, and he is here today as a member of the Academy of Medical Educators Council and as co-chair of the Professional Standards Committee. His colleagues say he is loyal, hardworking, and compassionate. And someone I respect once described him as, quote, a total gentleman, the nicest man you'll meet in MedEd. So with that, I will say welcome to Medical Educate Talks, Alan, and thank you for joining me today. Well, thank you very much indeed, Cara, and uh, thank you for putting a smile on my face, uh, if, if only if I'm, uh, but I'm also feeling a little bit embarrassed, but thank you for that very warm introduction. So what does a postgraduate dean of medicine do exactly? The clue, I think, is in the title postgraduate. So it's everything that happens after you finished medical school. So, for example, if you are a foundation doctor, ultimately the postgraduate dean will be responsible for your training and will be responsible for your onward progression. Um, we have responsibilities and there are about 18 of us around the UK. We've got responsibilities for in, in geographical areas. So, for example, I'm one of the deans in Scotland. We have to ensure that the postgraduate curricula can be delivered that they meet workforce and service needs. We have to revalidate doctors. We quality assure the placements and programmes. And basically we keep the wheels turning at a postgraduate level um, up, up to and uh, including the point when you become a, a, a consultant or general practitioner. So tell me a little bit about how you got involved in medical education and why you chose to continue down that path. Uh, it was a total accident. Um, well, almost total accident. Um, I was a little bit interested in education when I was uh, training in Glasgow as a, in medicine uh, as a junior doctor. But when I became a radiology training doctor, I, I guess there was just a bit of a thirst for something more than just looking at x-rays. Not that there's anything bad about that. <laughs> and there was one There was one day I was flicking through the um, the classified ads in a, a journal and I saw an advert for a clinical teaching fellow 
and I thought, oh, that sounds interesting. And I have to say that uh, my interest wasn't reciprocated by other people in my department. Oh. Not everyone thought it was a good idea, but enough people did. And so I did that for a couple of years and it was just brilliant, just be, being the opportunity to learn more about education, uh, about scholarship, uh, get involved in some publications and uh, making things a bit better. And I really enjoyed that, that, that role. Um, so that was the first step I had. And then I was really fortunate in that once I returned to my radiology training, Mm -hmm. The person at the medical school I was working with, he uh, said, well, why don't we try to see if we can um, uh, support you once you become a consultant? And and that was so that was really the first step, just by accident, looking through uh, uh, jobs. And I came across something that I thought this sounds really interesting. That that is a, a little bit crazy because it doesn't sound like you had too much involvement in med ed prior to seeing that advert. Is, did I understand that correctly? Uh, yeah, well, I, I suppose I had a little bit in that I, as a junior, as an SHO, I helped teach medical students and I wrote some um, small little informal guides for the students in yeah. Glasgow. But um, I, I guess I was just thirsty for something more and I didn't realise how thirsty I was until <laughs> I managed to get the, the job. Yeah. And uh, one thing just led to the other and it was the opportunity just to step outside training um, and really immerse myself in education and think, well, how can we work together across boundaries? Because education is such a wonderful tool for bringing people together. That That is such a great story, Alan. And this clinical teaching fellow post that you had uh, chosen to pursue is still available uh, with the University of Aberdeen to this day. And it's the post I'm doing just now. So ah. it, it, it's so it's so fantastic to speak to someone who did it so many years ago. And I think these fellowship posts are so precious because like you've said they're really that first big step for a lot of people into medical education and they open doors and they spark ideas and they create opportunities for people who might have not chosen to do it otherwise. So you know we talked about the fact that there were some people who weren't very supportive and that makes me sort of want to go towards the direction of of, of talking about your the hurdles you faced throughout your career did you experience any roadblocks or or failures oh loads of failures and i remember when i was a medical student the postgraduate dean came to speak to us one day and, and I, I thought, goodness me, there, there is a, a person who is so out of my league and they must be so successful. And a few years later, I'm pinching myself and I'm doing that role. And I've had loads of roadblocks along the way. Um, you mentioned at the start that I went to Aberdeen University. To be honest, that was one of the few places that, that would actually take me. I didn't do that well at school. I did OK, but 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 not. I wasn't a star. I failed quite a few um uh, in course assessments when I was a medical student. Uh, I failed my MRCP and FRCR exams. There's quite a few jobs that I've gone for that I haven't got in the past. But I think each time you have a knockback, um, that is a, um, a moment for learning and a, a moment of thinking, well, actually, uh, why was that exam, why was that post not the right one for me at that mm -hmm. particular time? And I think only by experiencing knockbacks, either in professional or personal life, can you 
actually really understand what it means to be um, a trainee or a student in that system. And I think, I hope it's made me a, a bit better at understanding how I can provide advocacy for people around me um, and, uh, and support the next generation because we do need people to really be passionate about education because it's a great thing to be involved with. I mean, it's it's actually so refreshing, Alan, to hear someone talk so openly about their failures because it's it's not a discussion we tend to have in, in the doctor's room very often. And um, I'm especially pleased that you were open about this because I was talking to a medical student this week and she was uh, worried about imposter syndrome and feeling uh, that she was an imposter within medical school. And one of the things she told me was, you know, we don't hear anyone talk about it. So having gone through all these experiences, do would you say that you feel imposter syndrome? Is that something you struggle with? Um, I, I think anyone that says they don't have some degree of imposter syndrome is probably kidding themselves. I think <laughs> it's healthy to feel a bit of an imposter um, wherever you are in the system because that acts as a bit of a check and a balance on the decisions you make. Um, and certainly for me, it, en it encourages and drives me to seek advice from uh, and involve lots of people in the decisions that I have to make. Um, and I find that really refreshing. So, yes, I have imposter syndrome and it never goes away. I, I think once you've been doing a job for a little bit longer, then you become a bit more comfortable in it. But you always need to have a bit of humility in what you, you're doing. Mm. Uh, I'm very fortunate in the role that I have. I feel very um, privileged to work with the people that I work with, whether it's junior doctors or the administrators or other people in the wider system. And, um, and so I think having that sense of vulnerability um, is, is really important. Having said that, there are some times where you just have to make a decision and you have to put yeah. on your your brave cloak and say, OK, this is what we're going to do. But equally, um, always good to be reflective and um, think, well, how can I learn from people around me to to, uh, to support them as best as I can? Yeah, uh, like I'm I'm almost speechless. <laughs> At hearing that, Alan, and given uh, the experience you have and the titles you have behind your name, we don't have very many people in medicine who are open about that. So my question to you is that have you found it easier to talk about your failures as you've become more experienced? Like, was this something you felt able to do when you were more junior? I remember when I failed my MRCP part one exam. Uh, I was working as a junior doctor in a, in a really busy cardiology unit and all my other mates, they, they'd all passed and I was the only one, as I recall, that had failed. And I found it really difficult then actually because I was in charge of a really quite a critical care unit and, and yet I'd been judged not to be up to the mark. So I did find it hard at that time, but actually the way I tried to rationalise it to myself is that um, I just wasn't ready and perhaps I hadn't done enough um, work for, for the exam. And I think the word failure itself, I, I don't really like that word um, in the context of exams or jobs. I think the word failure, I would repackage that as you're just not ready. 
you're not yeah. you're not quite ready for the next step and looking back on it um actually when i sat the exam and passed it the next time i was um i was properly prepared uh, the next time so it's um uh, and if everyone passes all the exams all the time then uh, it's probably not necessarily the best uh, uh, test yeah so i think it has made me stronger uh, or more compassionate and i hope it's maybe better equipped to understand what it means to um to not be successful in exams or job applications yeah that's i was i was thinking while you were chatting about that yes please let's not go into assessment theory <laughs> that's a yeah. whole other podcast <laughs> i think <laughs> but that's thank true. you for sharing that with us alan so then do you have any advice for a medical student or trainee or even a consultant who might be feeling like an imposter uh, at the moment? You spoke earlier about reaching out and speaking to other people. Do you have any other bits of advice that you would pass on to them? Um, generally, I think it's always great to be curious and to get involved, the opportunities are not going to land on your doorstep. I, I could quite happily have carried on in my clinical training and, I would, and uh, I'm sure I would have been fine in radiology. But being curious and just looking over that hedge to what is lying on the other side, I think that's been, that's been really helpful to me. I think it's quite good to get involved. And sometimes that involves a bit of discretionary effort. Um, so what I mean by that is volunteering to maybe be an examiner. Um, maybe if you're a medical student offering to um, help with a bit of work that one of the junior doctors or senior doctors is involved with. Because if, once you get involved with these lower level projects, then um, there's mutual confidence to move on to something that's a bit more involved, a bit more strategic. And one thing just leads to another. And I think also do stuff that you're interested in as well. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. There are some things that you have to do, um, like exams if you're a medical student, but there are but there's other things that you can choose to get involved with um, that. Are, and if you're interested in something and you can find some joy in what you're doing, then uh, you just keep uh, following that golden thread. And I never set out when I was a medical student to end up doing the role I'm currently doing but that's just the way things have turned out and yeah. uh, uh, my final bit of advice at this time is just be, be a bit flexible if something's not working out then just change tack uh, yeah. and that's fine because it's your career it's your interest it's your life and I think it's really important that you um, uh, that, that you can bend and flex. Yeah, that, that's given me some food for thought because certainly as an early career medical educator, I feel the peer pressure. So, you know, you earlier you were talking about how some people said that's a good idea, that's not a good idea. As someone who's branching out from clinical medicine to do something that's a little bit different, I find it quite hard to like drown out those voices that say, mm, are you sure about that? Mm, I'm not. I'm not certain. So it's good to hear that I should really follow my passion and 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 what I'm interested in and, and go for it. And I think yeah. we need voices like yours, Alan, <laughs> out yeah, there to yeah, encourage th others. Th th thanks. I mean, I, I was listening to some of the earlier podcasts in this series, and I think it was either Melvin uh, or Jackie was talking about having that clinical credibility. And that is really important for me. And I, I agree with what, what they said, because if you're wanting to 
influence people because medical education is all about people and mm -hmm. so you can write policies you can write um, um, standards but actually it, it's the people that are important and I think if you have that clinical credibility then it's much easier to have these influencing conversations and to drive and to make change and to understand how you respond to clinicians when they perhaps say to you no we don't want to do this mm -hmm. uh, and I've certainly had experience of that. Mm -hmm. And so you talk about um, influencing conversations and um, writing standards that lends nicely to our topic for this podcast, which is around um, professional standards. So as co-chair of the professional standards committee within the academy, my question to you, Alan, and it, I would anticipate that this is quite a tough one, but why do we need professional standards in medical education? I would turn that around and, and say, well, why do, do we not need them? How can we survive without them? Okay. Uh, because um, their education is such a, a, a multifaceted, complex area that we need to have some kind of framework in order to understand how we are developing either in teaching and designing and planning learning education scholarship and assessment um, I, I think the standards are fantastic because they set out very clearly um, a structure and they also act as a bit of a roadmap as well mm -hmm. so say for example you are a medical student uh, and you want to get involved then the standards actually lay out very clearly what sort of things might be useful to get involved with. Mm -hmm. And if you're a mid-career educator, then again, you might want to look at the slightly the higher level standards and say, well, actually, I'm performing well in designing and planning, learning, um, but perhaps the assessment um, section, that's got some areas of activity that I can perhaps develop more in. So I think it can guide you in seeking out appropriate opportunities um, so you become a bit more holistic. OK, so because that was one of the other questions I had for you, Alan, which is how can we use the standards? So you're suggesting to kind of use it as a framework or guide whereby we should reflect on our practice and use it to sort of develop personal development goals and help ensure that we have a holistic sort of education because I, I think this is one of the struggles with a medical education or medical education career there isn't a training program like there is for clinical medicine so you kind of have to make it up yourself as you go and it sounds like the professional standards can be a uh, help with that uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. When I was a clinical teaching fellow, um, these standards, they didn't exist at that time. And so I very much had to make it up as I went along, as you said. But 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 then again, drawing on the experiences of people who are an advice on people who are, are a little bit further ahead than me. And I find that really helpful. So I hope that we've moved on a lot from these times and so standards such as the academy standards are really helpful as a framework for individuals but also for people that are in charge of medical schools or or, or colleges or deaneries um, but also it's helpful for the patients that we're serving at the end of the day because if you've got a well trained well educated workforce then there's very clear evidence that patient outcomes are better better and uh, you know it's it's quite an impressive document so what was it 
like for the committee to um, sort of refresh those? What was the process like for you? Oh, it was fab, actually. It was really, really, really? exciting. Yeah, no, it was great. It was great. I mean, it, if you read it, it's it's quite on, on the face of it. It's it's just lots of dense text. But underpinning that, uh, there was a lot of really rich conversation. And Melvin and myself as co-chairs, we started off um, being well, we asked, I think, to to refresh the standards because the previous version of the standards had three levels mm -hmm. and we came out and said well actually we want to stretch and expand the standards to include the level four and we want to review all of them um, so we had a little working group um, to start off with and we had very open conversations and it was really energizing just really trying to understand what it is about each of the domains that we felt were important and we looked at every single word of every single standard and then we had a consultation, which was, um, it's a bit like showing your homework to the world yeah. to see, what, <laughs> to see what, <laughs> what they thought. And then the feedback was really positive. And then once we got the final internal approvals, we took it to our annual scientific meeting. And then yeah. that was, that was a, 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 sorry, we took it to our annual general meeting. And I remember Melvin and I presenting it then and then there was a bit of a pause as we waited for people to vote on yes or no and, uh, yes. and they all voted yes so it was <laughs> it, uh, yeah so it was, it was really um, it's quite a long journey yeah. but a thoughtful and, um, uh, and quite creative and imaginative journey so um, I'm really pleased that we've got to the next staging point. So I'm curious then Alan why do you think that some individuals or trainees or doctors fail to have a medical education career like what are the roadblocks that people should look out for well the first thing to say to that i think is that it's okay if not everyone wants to be a medical educator uh, and have that as a defined clear um special badge um in the same way that we don't want everyone to be a general practitioner or everyone to be a surgeon what we do want is for people to understand how important medical education is yeah, and agreed. to support those who do have a declared interest to follow that um, interest and that expertise and at one end, end of the spectrum you may have people who are um, professors of theory rich medical education who have big research teams and grants and, uh, and PhDs and at the other end of the spectrum you'll have people who don't do these things but will do a lot of bedside teaching or will champion the, the, the delivery of education in clinical areas and then there's everything in between as well so but wherever you are in that in that continuum there's a space and a place for you and the metric of success is not the highest level you can get to. Mm -hmm. The level of success is what is right for you at that time in your career. Mm -hmm. um, that was that was a, a great answer to a very difficult question. I tried to trip you up with that one. <laughs> I think it was a different question you asked me. <laughs> it's okay. It had a good answer anyway. <laughs> I think it. I think I'm. Uh, you, you can imagine when I was writing these questions, Alan. I was thinking about um, our group. You know, the developing medical educators group and the conversations that we have around our passion for medical education and the challenges we face as uh, trainees 
or um, newly qualified consultants or clinicians. And I think you brought up a really interesting point, which is that our mission should be to have medical education validated as a as a as a worthy pursuit and a worthy career. And with that medical education research as well, which is amongst the, the professional standards. But for that medical educator who's out there just starting out or to that medical student or trainee who has an interest in medical education, what message do you have for them? Firstly, I think it is fantastic that you are interested. And that is the first part to just to have mm -hmm. that spark. Mm -hmm. And once you've had that spark, then look around you and see, well, where's the education happening and who is delivering that? Because if there are students around you or trainees around you, there will be someone, somebody somewhere who will be involved in organising or delivering that. So that's often the first place I would look because it's much easier to uh, contribute to an activity that's already happening rather than to start off by yourself. I think it's really good to go to um, uh, meetings or seminars or local activities where education is being discussed because then you get to uh, because then you get to understand the language of education a bit more. Um, I, I did a, some postgraduate qualifications in medical education. I think they can be really helpful, uh, partly because it forced me to explore areas that were outside my comfort zone. So I'm not very good at statistics. I'm not very good at complicated spreadsheets, but I'm bet but I understand them a bit better because I had to engage with that sort of activity. Um, I think it's really helpful to give and receive meaningful feedback on your ability as an educator. Constantly be thoughtful about well, actually, what am I teaching? Why am I teaching and how can I move forward to to the next level? Um, it's good to learn from the mistakes. It's good to experiment as well. Um, yeah. There's been loads of things I've done that haven't gone well, but at least I've tried and I've learned from them. Yeah. And when there are opportunities that come up and uh, they might not be funded to start with, but there might be funding if you're a, um, a postgraduate um, doctor, then look, uh, look for them, have conversations with people and offer to be an examiner for undergraduate, postgraduate exams, get involved in admissions. Um, if there's widening access work, get involved with that. That's been really inspirational to me, the work I've done with that. Um, and just keep following that golden thread. And it's not a race. It's no. not a race. Um, I'll try and remember that. Because <laughs> most things feel like a race in medicine, but it's quite refreshing to hear that. So the, in summary, Alan, the message I got was that to put yourself out there and to get involved and to keep going and to follow your passion. I've really, really enjoyed our conversation today. And I think I'd like to end this episode by reflecting on an answer that you gave me when I, I sent you some of the interview questions via email. I asked you for the best advice you had ever received from a mentor. And there were two pieces of advice that really stuck out to me. And that was that people are more important than the process and to remember to be curious, compassionate and kind. So I think those are two great messages to pass on to our listeners today. Um, thank you again for joining me, Alan. Thank you very much indeed.
Great. So if you've enjoyed this episode, please follow our Twitter page for more information about our events in the next couple of weeks. There's also the Academy of Medical Educators um, conference coming up in June. Uh, so stay tuned for more information regarding that. And thanks again for listening and talk to you soon. So that's it for today's episode of Medical Educate Talks. We hope you've enjoyed it. And if you have, please give us a follow so you can find out when the next episode is released. If you'd like to find out more information about the Developing Medical Educators group, visit medicaleducators.org and we'll see you in the next episode. Thank you.